Millennial Falcon, a pop culture podcast by three geeky millennials. My name is Kwai Chen Bui. I'm a writer for Slash Film and a pop culture journalist in D.C. And I'm joined by... I am Ani Crittenden, a writer at Gate Star News. And I'm Willoughby Dobbs, a filmmaker in the D.C. area. So today, guys, we have a very interesting, some would say impossible episode to do. We're going to be talking about Mission Impossible, the franchise. The movie franchise. The movie franchise. We will not be discussing the TV show because I don't think any of us have seen it. Nope. My mom used to watch it. So that's the, that's the, the closest connection oh, we have. I've actually Ooh. seen like one episode once when oh. it was like showing on TV. Yeah. So, so HT is an expert yeah, on Mission Impossible, the TV show. Of course. Um, and I really just want to say, before we get started with the rest of the episode, I just want to say one line from probably my favorite line of the entire franchise. Um, give me a second. The president has invoked ghost protocol. <laughs> it's a good line. You know what oh, my favorite is? Yeah? My favorite is, Ethan Hunt is living manifestation of destiny. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of, that, that does kind of up it a little bit more. Um, but before we get going even for even, even more, I think we have an ad, don't you? Launch don't you think? I think so. I think that's what I was. Yeah, I was gonna say before we launch into our episode, I think we have a sponsor this week. Yeah, the Millennial Falcon is brought to you by running. It's what Tom Cruise does, and if you want to get away from Scientology. <sighs> All right. That was a really interesting ad, guys. That got political, guys. <laughs> I think that is something to keep in mind and think about, you know, ponder late at night. Mm-hmm. Think about yeah. Tom Cruise running. Think about running from certain churches that aren't churches. <laughs> yep. Um, anyway, so. Mission, Mission Impossible. This is the Millennial Impodcastable. Now we owe three hundred dollars. <laughs> well, um, I don't want to end up paying to that franchise because they are one of the greatest franchises of modern age. I think probably the greatest action franchise we have today. That's a bold undeniably, statement. undeniably, and we're I gonna would, get into why that I is. Would- yeah, I would also reckon Fast and Furious is up there, but I think Mission Impossible takes the beat. I think it does. We haven't yet seen the newest Mission Impossible yet, and I know that people are raving about it and equating it to... Raving. Yeah, raving. They're saying it's one of the best action movies of this current era and is equal to or even greater than Mad Max Fury Road, which... What? I know. I'm so ready for this movie now. Like... I'm so hype. So we've been excited about it, and we've been just marathoning all the Mission Impossible movies, watching some Mission Impossible movies we haven't seen before, and preparing ourselves for this podcast, because uh, this is a mission we chose to accept. Yes, we did. Yes. Very good. Very <laughs> thank good. You. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad we worked that in. There's, that's what I love about this franchise, is that they have certain staples in each movie mm-hmm. and they play with them in the later movies. They, you know, give nods to earlier ones. Um, so do we want to just go movie by movie? Have we all seen each one? We have. I Have you guys seen all each one? I yeah, have. I've, I've seen them all. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was actually watching all in my marathon. I had never seen Mission Impossible 2 before. So I I got to watch it for the first time in this marathon. And you know what? I actually enjoyed it more than I thought I would. But we'll, we'll get to that when we get to MI2, of course. Let's start with the one and only first Mission Impossible. Uh, Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma, released in 1997? Six. Six? 96. I got it right. Guys, we were all four years old when this movie came out. Yeah, so it's You know how old Tom Cruise is now? He's 56. He's almost 60. He was very young. You know what? Scientology really needs to push that immortality more. I think it'll really be a good selling point for them. Yeah. He's the same age that um, John Voight. Yeah. So John Voight was 58 when when the first movie came out. Tom Cruise is 56 now. If you look at the two of them, oh boy, is John Voight. It is. Well. Or or Tom Cruise does have like a pop vinyl portrait somewhere like aging for him. Yeah, he and uh, Paul Rudd. Although Paul Rudd's painting is definitely in much better shape. Yeah, and Elijah Wood. And Elijah Wood. These guys and Jennifer Aniston, they all have portraits somewhere aging for them in some factory. Yeah. It's there's a conspiracy there's definitely a conspiracy afoot. Oh yeah. So Mission Impossible, directed by Brian De Palma, released in nineteen ninety six. Uh it was a reboot essentially of the popular 60s uh tv series mission impossible and featured john voigt as the one of the original characters jim phelps uh in who was in the first series tom cruise played a wholly original character ethan hunt who would become the linchpin of this franchise though we did not know yet that yet because in the first film he was kind of the typical hothead it's just a cocky Tom Cruise looking hothead guy. Um, it was actually kind of in line with a lot of the films he was doing at the time, in which he would play like the young ingenue to the more what wh- wizened, wizened, the more wizened, um, wizened, yeah, wizened, wizened, wizened. We'll, we'll just unless say they're wizened. wizards. Are wizards wizened? <laughs> no, Perhaps. wizards are wizened and wizards are wizened. <laughs> oh, God. Um, anyways, the more wizened, wizened, (laughs) professional, (laughs) um, and in a sense, that was what was going on here until the third act twist, uh, Warning, by the way, this this podcast will contain spoilers for all the Mission Impossible films, so if you've not seen any of them, uh, save it for when you have seen all of them. Or just skip through and find when we go to the next one that you have seen. Starting now, Alec Baldwin is in the fifth movie. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Deal with it. What? Yeah. You thought Stephen Baldwin would be in it? No, it's Alec. You blew my mind. So, (laughs) the first Mission Impossible... uh, We're taking this about as seriously as Mission Impossible takes itself. Yes. So... Well, actually, the first three films take itself pretty seriously. Oh, see, see, I... I don't think the second one takes itself seriously at all. Mm-hmm. I think the first one is serious, second one is bonkers, and the third one starts to find the balance. Let's just say the second one has Tom Cruise and T- Tandy Newton l- looking at each other across a ballroom floor while flamenco dancers are, are dancing in slow motion, and they just eye each other for like two minutes. It's perfect. They also have sort of dry hump in like 
a coffin thing. Yeah. <laughs> and there's doves. There's a lot of doves. I mean, it's John Woo, so, but we're getting ahead of ourselves, guys. Yeah, we are. Let's talk about Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma. Noir expert extraordinaire and how he does an action movie. This was the most Brian De Palma film I've ever seen. So I will admit, when I first started this marathon, I actually hadn't watched the first Mission Impossible all the way through. So watching it all the way through, it struck me how much this was just Brian De Palma doing his his own unique spin on a Mission Impossible movie. So Brian De Palma has uh, directed movies like Scarface, Blowout, The Untouchables, and uh, he has this sort of... Um, paranoia bent on him he really likes his yeah. his 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 uh intense close-ups and his dutch angles and low angles as well something to like really unsettle the audience and make everyone seem like they're about to make out even though they're just like intensely staring at each other like really evilly but it's um in it's something that is so unexpected for a franchise like for the beginning of a franchise like this which is kind of seen as more almost analog practical classic action filmmaking this one isn't really like an action film except for like a few signature set pieces which become like the anchors of the mission impossible series and it's yeah it's really interesting to me that like we've had so many stylistic moments and twists on it that is so uniquely de palma and so what did you guys think i'm i'm rambling a little bit anya what did you think about Mission Impossible, the first one? Um, I liked it. I think I had seen, I think, all of these movies precisely once each until my roommate and I started doing a marathon of them in anticipation of this summer's movie, in anticipation of Fallout. Um, so it was fun going back to revisit them. So I haven't seen one, two, and three in a very long time. So I couldn't remember anything about the first three. Um, and I remember... Two things about number one specifically. One, I'm very sad Emilio Estevez dies so soon because I love Emilio Estevez and his death is so brutal. It oh, it's the worst. It was shocking. It like was, and I, it like went straight really close up into like yeah. how it just like goes into his face like that shard yeah. or whatever. I was like floored, and then I remember, and then I reminded myself, this is a Brian De Palma movie. You should not be surprised. And um, it's also a subversion of the television show which is about a group like getting shit done whereas this one kind of goes like no it's gonna be about tom cruise and ving reigns yeah it's interesting how much it's kind of solely on ethan's shoulders whereas the more recent films i would say especially starting with three and then especially four and forward really go back to the whole like team element of mission impossible which is what i really love about mission impossible especially yes it's so good it is that's what i think really is when the mission impossible franchise came into its own uh but it's interesting how the first mission impossible is really built on being a tom cruise vehicle because i think at the time he was sort of searching for his own action franchise and you can kind of build this franchise as being like his james bond series Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or even his superhero series, because really, Ethan Hunt becomes a superhero later on. He becomes very mythical. Mm -hmm. Wilby, what uh, do you have to say about Mission Impossible? I like it a lot. I think that 
I didn't see it until 2015 when Rogue Nation came out, and I had watched the movies for the first time ever. I was like, oh, Rogue Nation looks really good, but I want to know like how it got there. And then I learned that every movie is its own standalone, and only Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames are like the only connected tissue. And I was like, oh, okay. So I watched each one, and I was like, Mission Impossible is very Brian De, De Palmi and very 90s and very like smooth jazz versus the uh like Hans Zimmer score you know it's like it's it's smooth jazz versus Hans Zimmer I feel like when it comes to the that first movie and the rest of the movies um and uh it's got all the features we would later like come to love like especially like the the Pentagon break-in scene is just like iconic. I feel like that's the most iconic image from this franchise is Tom Cruise descending on a, on like a rope into the middle of this secure computer room, which is just hilarious to me. When it's like uh, they take that and they use that in in a oh is it go, uh, Rogue Nation where they have he has to go underwater to, in time for Benji to get the the um like the profile like they have so many callbacks to it they have one in like mission impossible 3 uh which is like a kind of a very obvious very jj abrams sort of oh where he descends in the vatican yeah it's like yeah it's like i was like oh this is like it's kind of typically jj abrams where it's just like you really just photocopied this but hammers home references yeah like nobody's business they do it again with ghost and ghost protocol with jeremy renner instead of oh yeah because they thought he was taking over the franchise at the time well okay we're getting ahead of ourselves brian honestly can we talk about them one by one well we can eh, we can do it we can do it guys it's a linchpin it's a focus point it's tom cruise um (laughs) So yeah, the first one has has its like noir trappings and very visually stylistic that you know, it's not very action heavy, it's very like slow moving. Um but then once the action does get in, I think it, they do it very well. Um and I like the I like Ving Rames like always like stylish and the guy from Leon the Professional is there. Uh and being very obviously evil. <laughs> yeah, being yeah. very obviously evil. He has They're not well, the villains in this franchise don't really yeah, he's very themselves. He yeah. holds a knife like nobody's business. Um and uh John Voigt being like old man John Voigt, uh even though he was fifty six, which is just kinda wild that he's like he's like hundred and two now, I guess. Um <laughs> uh, so yeah, like no this movie's good. I don't think it's my favorite. I think I would rank it like four out of five like i we would can, we can do our rankings later yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah of course yeah, I, yeah that's what I, have to say. I think it's interesting that like Mich- the first mission possible really set the standard for a lot of what we would become familiar with in the mission impossible franchise which is a movie built around one or two really great set pieces a nonsensical plot and just like yes. outwardly re- obvious villains uh in a sense and also uh tom cruise never really <laughs> Always being a rogue agent. I don't think there's Always. any of these films where Tom Cruise is not acting in, as a disavowed agent in some capacity. He always has to be a rogue. Free. He's still part of the IMF, but he's doing unsanctioned missions. Yes. They're always they're, unsanctioned. They're it's, always yeah. unsanctioned. It's funny because they always play it as like a big shock. They're like, we won't be able to have any of the typical, any of our like technology. And like, you oh, still have like all the technology. It's so apparent in Ghost Protocol. And what, what Brad Bird does is so great where he's like, nothing works. Mm-hmm. 
All the, yeah. the mask fails, the glove fails. Oh, I love that. That's one of my favorite parts of, of Gross Protocol. But anyways, See? let's move See? on to... It's hard, but... Okay, we can do John it, Woo. Anya. Mission, Mission Impossible, Impossible 2. John Woo. Tom Cruise. Tandy Newton. Anthony Hopkins. The guy from Moulin Rouge. So many people the are The guy movie. from Ever After. I don't know that movie. Is it the one Wait, with you've your never seen friend? Ever After? Willoughby. No. Willoughby. I've seen it like a hundred times. I, yeah. You know, this is going to be our next homework. Is that the one with Drew Barrymore? Yes. It's the Cinderella retelling. Is that the retelling. one where she plays Cinderella? Yeah, yes. but it's like a retelling. It's like sort of a, a historic retelling of Cinderella. Like, oh, she actually existed. And she it's also perfect. may have known, um, uh, who is it? Da Vinci. Da Vinci. Oh, yeah, Da Vinci. Okay. okay. I, <laughs> no, I mean, I was a guy in the 2000s. I didn't watch... <laughs> Anyways, that's going to be your next assignment, Willoughby. It's funny because I I just watched Mission Impossible 2 and I cannot remember uh, the guy from Moulin Rouge, the Duke, um, but I remember the guy who played Prince Henry and Ever After because he's the main villain, Mm -hmm. the very Scottish one. Right. He's probably the weakest villain of the whole franchise, I think. The the main henchman and the Duke are are the same actor, and I can't watch Mission Impossible 2 without thinking of the Like a Virgin scene from Moulin Rouge. (laughs) Um, well, classic. fun facts for all of you guys. So I want to talk first about Mission Impossible 2 because this is my first time watching it during this like week-long marathon I did. And I was surprised by how much I liked it because I had heard many people say that this was the worst and weakest Mission Impossible. And f- to an extent, I can see why. It has none of the trappings, really, of what makes a Mission Impossible movie so great. It takes place basically like in like the countryside and where there's no you know urban setting there's no car chases or anything it's just like tom cruise kind of just waiting in a shack while thandy newton like like um swans around yeah and i was like yeah i was like i can see why but also it is a a remake of my favorite alfred hitchcock movie notorious which starred cary grant and ingrid berman or Ingrid Bergman, who actually has one more tie to this this franchise in uh, Rogue Nation. We'll get to that later. Um, and, well, I'll talk about it. It's because it's uh, Ingrid Bergman is Ilsa, is, has a big resemblance to Ilsa Faust, and they do a lot of callbacks to that with Casablanca and everything. I'm pretty sure Rebecca Ferguson is a clone. Yeah. Um, but we'll get to that. Yes. So, <laughs> Notorious, uh, it is about a... Um, a CIA agent, CIA agent who recruits this daughter of a Nazi to spy on another Nazi and like get married to him and basically like be a double agent and stuff. And this is shot for shot a remake of Notorious in the most hilarious way. Like this, the one horse racing scene is the exact same scene that they have in, in Notorious, like one, which is one of the big climaxes. So it was really funny to me that John Woo just basically took this movie and was like you know what, I'm just going to remake Tutorials with this and didn't really care about Mission Impossible. But I think it established one really important thing for the Mission Impossible franchise is that it allowed each director who uh, came on to this, this franchise, which is about five directors now, as we'll be saying before, to put their own signature stamp on it. 
So we're talking about how De Palma did the first Mission Impossible in the most De Palma way. John Woo came in and was like, I'm not going to try to copy De Palma. I'm just going to do John Woo. So there's doves. And there's boy, does he. <laughs> and oh, boy, does he. There's doves everywhere. There's Tom Cruise throwing like a pair of glasses that uh, explode in midair. There's he uses Tom- two guns at once. There's Tom Cruise using the the signature double guns. He at one point attacks the bad guy with like a flying death hug after like colliding their motorcycles. He rock climbs on dangerous cliffs for fun without any gear. I will say this movie that- established that he's a thrill seeker. Mm-hmm. And that that, that too stressed me out. <laughs> It looks like they really did it. Yeah. It looks like she really did it. It's just basically establishing that Tom Cruise is crazy, and this is yep. a franchise for us to watch him be crazy for our entertainment. And I really like that John Woo was able to do his signature style on this and make it as buck wild as possible, and I loved it. I was just all in, even on the slow parts where they were just like sitting in a shack and waiting for Thandie Newton to get information. It was really fun, and... um Really exciting for me, even though and the set pieces were actually pretty good too. It was it was very much almost like an older, like a newer franchise Mission Impossible movie where they're like, oh, of course he's gonna go this way, like he's gonna go at the top of the building and dive in because that's what Tom Cruise does. It's interesting because like that is already established at this point that he's crazy and will just do like the most insane way possible of breaking into a building. So yeah, I I will say Mission Impossible two. Is not my least favorite Mission Impossible. There you go. So, um, I think it probably is my. Mm, I go back and forth with one and two because mm-hmm. I think both one and two are have a lot of weak spots, a lot weaker spots than three onwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think four has a stronger plot, or sorry, one has a stronger plot. But two is just more fun because, like you said, it's just John Woo doing John Woo. And he's just like, I'm going to live my best life with this Mission Impossible film. And I'm like, all right, I respect that. Okay. Okay. You also have Anthony Hopkins going, it's not Mission Difficult. It's Mission Impossible. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. How can we forget that? Um, So it's bonkers. I don't think it's a good film. It's not. (laughs) I don't think the first movie is a good film either. So I think, too, just what it has going for it is that it is just a bit off the wall and fun. And as long as you're willing to, like, just go with it and not question too many things, I think that's the key with Mission Impossible 2 is, like, don't question it. Just let John Woo do his thing. And maybe by the end, you'll be cheering when the death flying when the flying death hug happens because i certainly was ht you like the dark horses of these action <laughs> franchises because like you talk about how you how much you love tokyo drift tokyo drift then, is the best fast and furious movie i know and and you really really like uh uh mission impossible 2 which like both are like considered like the low points of the franchises but like i th- i think there's a lot of good for them but i will say that two Two has some crazy buck wild moments, but it is not my favorite. Um, just because I feel like sometimes I'm just like, what's happening? <laughs> like, where's like where's Danny Newton? Like, where's Tom Cruise? Like, I like yeah, don't me, question it, Willoughby. It's hard to because like, I I'm a I have a bit of an analytical brain when it comes to this kind of stuff, and so like it didn't keep me in enthusiastic the entire time. 
unlike the the other movies, especially three forward. Um, but I really, I mean, I liked Tom Cruise in it, although it's he's kind of a different Ethan Hunt than like the other Ethan Hunts. Um, there's a little bit of inconsistency there, but this, this, that's like a minor, a little bit. That's a minor thing. Um, I will say that it's the the uh, attack hug from the motorcycles is just kind of like ridiculous, and I love it. Um, I paused that scene and I had to like collect <laughs> myself after that. <laughs> um, and like the whole like final fight where he's like throwing sand in his face and like kicking the gun up from the middle of nowhere. <laughs> It's there's a lot of good moments, but there's I feel like it for me personally it doesn't all connect, which is okay. If it connects for you, it connects for you. I, that's that's what I'm saying here. Yeah, it's like I, no, these, I agree. These it's movies, not a great movie. <laughs> if these movies are you know to each their own. That's yeah. my life lesson for you I guys. I like movies week, that just go to each for their it. own. Yeah, I yeah. Like I think the key thing is that world. like yeah, is that two doesn't connect. I'm not sure who it could connect with because like. It makes literally zero sense, and it is all over the place. There's the Chimera but, and the but there's the Bellerophon. Like, there's so much going on. But I yeah. would argue that's like not the point of Mission Impossible. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And I would say that just like because Mission Impossible is what it is, it's like set pieces and it's action and it's more humor now, which I appreciate. But like, I would argue that like because two is fun that actually makes it more of like gets to the essence of what mission impossible is for me than like one does which is almost too serious yeah i feel like i feel like for me i think my benchmark is they're all ridiculous plots and crazy villains and like all rogue agents who have gone evil and what what makes it a good mission impossible for me is that i can kind of push off the craziness and like focus on what matters and for for some reason it works those that stuff works better for me in the later movies whereas with the first two it's sort of like i focus more on the problems than the fun parts i mean fair but they're they're not good because i feel like the fun parts aren't as fun to me Mm -hmm. as the rest of the movies are like jj Bird, Macquarie, like those ones there's a lot of ridiculousness going on, but I f- and I feel like the best parts of those movie outweigh the best parts of the older movies. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I would completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. I think two is fun, but like I'd have nothing on like especially four and five. Mm-hmm. Do we want to move on to uh, three? Three. Yeah. Okay. So this is J.J. Abrams' first movie. This is when they when he established himself as the master rebooter where he can just come into a franchise and just sort of shake things up, shake things off, and uh, and give it the old Taylor Swift try. Like, there's so much going on in this movie that makes it, like, a clear J.J. Abrams movie, from the casting of previous TV show character actresses to uh, the incredible color disp- on display to the close-ups to the gritty, gritty film panoramic shots that he does. Um, and by gritty, I mean grimy. Like, none of his, like, his first two movies are so colorful and grimy. You know? Yep. Yeah. Also, Carrie Russell has as a so spy before she was a spy in the Americans. Oh, yeah! What were you saying, Willoughby? It has so oh, much... I was just saying, I was just saying Tom Cruise has so much sweat on him yeah. in this movie. <laughs> 
I mean, if you were Ethan Hunt, you would also have a lot of sweat on you. Mm-hmm. He sweats so much in this. Can movie. you blame him? No. <laughs> he has a very. He leads a very stressful life. We do not. He's a very we do, sweaty life. Willoughby, we do not sweat shame on this podcast. I'm not sweat shaming. I'm just making a clear standpoint. If you look at Ethan Hunt in that opening scene with Davian, and it's the torture scene, he is sweaty. Yeah. We don't know. Ethan might be very self-conscious about how much he sweats. So I don't just... think Ethan Hunt's a very self-conscious man. Anyways, this was J.J. Abrams at the height of Alias's success. And you can see a lot of those those um, influences in Mission Impossible 3. It's basically a really good Alias episode. With, Which is um, what Tom Cruise wanted. Yeah, with the with the, you know Sydney Bristow in uh, Alias is a spy who's trying to lead a double life as a normal college. Is she a college student? No, a normal person. A normal person. She might have started out normal as a normal spy. I never yeah, Alias, yeah. Should. And this is very much in the vein of that. In Mission Impossible Three, J.J. Abrams gives uh, Tom Cruise a wife, played by Michelle Monaghan who is so severely underused in this franchise that it makes me sad. But he gives her, he gives him a wife. He gives him a longing for a normal life. He's been out of the field for, for who knows how long and just on the recruiting side. But then when one of his former recruits is uh, endangered, he is brought back into the field to try and rescue her. And it sets him off on this vast conspiracy. Uh, it's very with, John Wickian yes. of J.J. Abrams. Yeah, I think I'm back. <laughs> but uh, it does. Mission Impossible Three does have the best villain of the entire franchise, played by Philip Seymour mm. Hoffman. Oh, Anya's making a face. Oh, wait. Ooh. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. Oh, wait. Well, do you know Willoughby or? I mean, the only other villain you could name is Solomon Lane. Yeah, and I think I, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, but like I don't know, Solomon made a big impression on me. And Solomon Lane Rogue is Nation. pretty good. He is pretty good. Can you name? They're the, like the bad guys from. I guess you can name Jim Phelps. Oh, I don't. But even... can you name the bad guy from two or four? Two is Prince Henry from Ever After. No, can you name his character? Prince Henry from <laughs> Ever After. <laughs> Four is the guy who played uh, Mikael in the Swedish Girl with the Dragon Tattoo movie. Okay. <laughs> also, Leia Sado is in Four. Yes, and she's so as good. a gray character. Anyway, he's like an arms dealer, diamonds. I actually, yeah, mostly I think, evil. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, is a a step above Solomon Lane for me, just because he is so he's so malevolent and gentle at the same time it's kind of like uh he and he brings it to such a personal level where he like calmly tells ethan hunt when he discovers that he's been kidnapped i will find you and i will find your loved ones and i will kill them in front of you and he does it in a way that's so chilling without being overly sinister that it feels out of step with the rest of the mission impossible franchise which is big and bombastic he takes it slow and subtle and that's what i really like about Phil. he's always three steps ahead and once he finds out Ethan's first name, he doesn't even find his last name. He just immediately knows how to find his wife. And it's, to me, it, it the Owen Davian, I guess is his full name, mm-hmm. reminds me of Heath Ledger's Joker in a way, where he's almost an agent of chaos. Because you never really know what he's going to do. And he always has, like, mm-hmm. people ready to help him. Like, when he's being kidnapped, it re- very much reminded me of the scene in The Dark Knight when they kidnapped the Joker, where 
they um or they're trying to get uh what's his face um two-face out of uh joker's hands and they like the he already has like backup on the way like ready to save him from the hero Mm -hmm. and i feel like that's a clear indication of like a really good villain of of a man who plans ahead but also plans for like personal personal gripes mm-hmm. to go go through the 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 plan and he's plus a planner, we learn, but he's also unpredictable yeah he's like if you you don't know his plan so he is so he seems unpredictable mm-hmm. but he has a whole plan like he is he he put the the electronic device in his head and you know like there's, there's so much going on but to us the audience you're like oh shit this is so unexpected but like to him no, this is just like step three in a step nine plan. Mm-hmm. But I do think a lot of the strengths of Mission Impossible 3 do ride on Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as Owen Davian and how good yeah, he is I as agree. a villain. Because yeah, the right. rest of the film, while it's it's good and it's like well-directed in the J.J. Abrams way uh, and like has all the elements that you like in a good spy episode of Alias, uh, it does sometimes feel like he pays almost too uh, like loyal homage to what people liked about the first Mission Impossible, with with like the the callback to the the I don't know the jump the leap scene, and the um, and everything like that. Uh, I do like that how the stakes are are made and that how they're heightened, but it definitely does at times just feel like an episode of Alias to me. Yeah, I think it, I think it's very telling that this is the first movie where like. Uh, our director tries to give Ethan more, mm-hmm. just tries to make him deeper and more layered by giving him a love interest and giving him that that push and tug between being an agent or kind of leaving that life behind. Um, and I think in some places it works and in some places it doesn't really work. Um, you know, we do see Michelle Monaghan at the end of the fourth movie and she's coming back for the sixth. So I am curious about how that they have kept her on. Because, um, like, he had, like, a thing with Tandy Newton at the end of two. Like, they seemed to be together. It was, and then they were, I mean, seen... they were very two hot people, like, in the room together. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then you never see them again. But, like, Michelle Monaghan, her character has been sticking around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do find it interesting that we're finally getting this kind of personal thread of Ethan's that is, like, staying around. And, and I'm glad that... In four, they didn't fridge her like they were like plant like the backstory of four was like. You know how they were like right. uh, they like to give Jeremy Renner like a personality. They were like, yeah, I was tailing a man and his wife, and the wife died, and the man went on a killing rampage. And then Tom Cruise was like, nah, brah, that wasn't uh, that didn't happen. You just thought it. Happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He gave him a false motivation. <laughs> Um, but yeah, but I, I agree. Um, I think, I mean, I think Phil Seymour Hoffman and um, Solomon, I forget who plays Solomon. I like know his oh, name. Oh, uh, Sean Harris. Thank you. Yes, Sean Harris. Um, I think they're definitely the two best villains of the franchise. And I think they're pretty on par for me. But I mean, rewatching this one recently just made me think like, man, it's, I'm sad we lost Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Because, He's such like, great. He's such a great actor. Good. And And, even like minor roles. He's just so. He gives it his all. He really does. Absolutely. And this movie. The way he says pig fuck in The Master 
is the best part of that movie. I'll never oh, get over that. Yeah, that's true. And you're it's... just like, pig fuck. <laughs> yeah, he's language. Great. Sorry, parents. Yeah, sorry for for the cursing in this episode. We're just very excited about Mission Impossible. It just it feels like this is kind of the first Mission Impossible that has real weight mm-hmm. and like oh, real yes. gravity. Um, and I think that's I think this is why three starts to kind of get the franchise on track to where it is now. Yeah, I think the first two uh, slid by very heavily on aesthetic. Yes, on yes. the style of the directors. And this one was the first one where, you know, J.J. Abrams, uh, as predictable, predictable as he can be, he has such a great hand with emotion and with uh, character. And he he's really brings that, that in Mission Impossible he's 3. He's got that Giacchino score. Yes, yeah, he's he got does. That and he wasn't, guy. he wasn't the Abrams we knew at the time. Because, like, I mean, remember, like, he wasn't J.J. Abrams yet. He yes. was... So relatively small, and so creator of movie co-creator of Lost, like that's all. Yeah, yeah, and so you know we didn't have all those preconceptions about him, those Mm -hmm. preconceived notions, and so I think you know you really see where his talents lie. He was young and hungry, and you Mm -hmm. can see that you could see his style evolve over his films, starting with Mission Impossible and especially Star Trek Oh Nine. Like the two of them have very similar. Um, style, stylistic, like cinema, like lighting and camera wise, mm-hmm. like there are shots in, uh, in Mission Impossible Three and Star Trek where I'm like, oh, he has like a very good eye for color. Like he has very, he likes the yellows, he likes the reds, he likes, I guess he likes the blues. And he, he likes the, blues. He, he has uh, those lens flares. He's got the bit of the lens flares in in three. I saw. I was like, hey, I see what you're doing, buddy. Um. And you can kind of, you know, I never, I actually have never seen any episode of Felicity or Alias. I mean, I've seen all of Lost. I've seen the pilot. And so he, you know, we know he knows how to direct. I mean, he knows how to like run a show. And I've seen all his movies after that. And like Super 8 has a bit of that like handheld style going on. And uh, I, yeah, so we just, we, he's really good at grounding films, making everything look realistic and not like a set. Because he uses the camera with his cinematographer really well in capturing human emotion on their faces. He likes the tight close-up, which you don't see a lot in the other movies, I feel mm-hmm. like. Yeah, which is yeah. why you relate so much to the characters in this film. Yeah. Also, I shout also out totally... To... <laughs> shout out to uh, Aaron Paul showing up in this movie. Oh, yeah. in this movie. Uh, being typecast again as a druggie before, like, he, hit, he made it in Breaking Bad. That was oh, the second Aaron time Paul. being typecast like that. That was his first time was in Veronica Mars, and then in this so, movie. I mean, what we're saying is that he, the producers of Breaking Bad saw those two roles of his and go, "Oh, we found our Jesse." Yep. I also totally forgot that three was the first introduction to Simon Pegg's Benji. I thought he came in in four. Yeah. Um, I also didn't realize that like his now like when I watched three and realized he came in that early. I realized, I was like, oh, Simon Peck's friendship with J.J. Abrams is, like, a long, years-long long. thing. It's like, a long-standing thing. I always think of him with Edgar Wright, but now I think about him being in, like, all of J.J. Abrams' movies, and I'm just like, oh. That's true. Oh, yeah, because yeah, he's in, he has, the, he has the secret role in Force Awakens, but yeah, in, in Star Trek. 
yeah, and he's in Star Trek, and he was in Mission Impossible, and I'm just like, oh, this is like a working relationship I didn't, I never thought about. And yeah. I think the introduction of Benji is one of like the greatest accomplishments that this series Agreed. could have. And it's like, not, oh, he, we need humor. Yeah, he, we need humor, and we need heart. And um, actually, that's going to be a good lead-in to Mission Impossible Four, because I think Benji. Simon Pegg's Benji is the heart of this movie. Oh, I agree. And um, so he really comes into his own in Mission Impossible 4. I'm going to make this a Benji show. <laughs> Let's do it. Yes. Please. So um, I will say during my rewatch, uh, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol was my favorite before before I started. And I will say it's still my favorite because like Anya was saying before, it re it brings back that element of the team to this uh franchise and also brings the element of found family in a way and then something that i think is really strong with it is that the characters are so strong and delineated in a way that it's almost like the five-man band even though there are only four uh characters on this four team members it is basically along the lines of a five-man band so a five-man band is a sort of structure a narrative like a trope i guess in writing and in tv and movies uh which has a group of five characters uh characterized by the leader the lancer the smart guy the strong man and the heart so um and i think all the characters in mission impossible 4 really fit well into those uh types so tom cruise of course ethan hunt is the leader uh paul Patton's character is the strong man uh, Jeremy Renner is the Lancer because the Lancer is often the foil to the to the le- to the leader as well as being sort of the right hand man. Uh, and uh, Simon Pegg is both the smart guy and the heart, and that's where it becomes so important because he brings that humor to the franchise, but he also brings this um, this real beating heart to it. And it's a there's a reason that he's been in like all the Mission Impossible movies since then because he basically turns Tom Cruise into the dad of this series. <laughs> Every time he's with Benji, he always has to reprimand him and he has to become the responsible one and it's always so fun seeing them bounce off each other. And it's interesting that we have this series be introduced Jeremy Renner to as like the sort of um, next replacement for Tom Cruise, but when you watch the movie, you realize that he never, his character never really uh, establishes himself as like the next replacement or the not at all. Because just... they did a they yeah. did a rework yeah. of the script during the filming, so they kind of changed it halfway through, which is why he doesn't really do anything character wise in the end. He's just sort of the guy who does the. Well, he's there the... to be the foil to Ethan. Essentially, yeah. he's always kind of. Uh, questioning Ethan and, you know, trying to block him in that kind of sense. And it works actually in the in the way that this team dynamic is. And it kind of establishes him as kind of the brat of the team, which I really like. He's super bratty. And I'm like, this is a fun dynamic oh. that you don't see in a lot of the other Mission Impossible movies because everyone, all the other teams are so sleek and well put together. But here, there's a really good chemistry in the team, but they clash a lot. And that's what makes the conflict so interesting. And Bradford. I mean, they, oh, they, I was just gonna say they did, they did a good job of reworking the script so that they didn't do too much of him 
being the next Ethan Hunt. Yeah. But I just remember like the news reports of like, is Jeremy Renner going to be the new lead of the to- of Mission Impossible? And then it wasn't the case. Yeah. He was at the time being positioned as like the new lead for Mission Impossible as well as the new lead for like the Bourne series. And that didn't happen for, e- for either of him. And I feel kind of bad for both. And for him in both sense. They- both care. Both main dudes were like, "We want our franchises." Yeah, they're back. like, "We're coming back." Actually, and it's funny because Jeremy Renner is not that much old, younger than Tom Cruise. He's only like, I don't know, five he's in years his, younger. He's, he's in his, he's in his he's, yeah, he's in his forties. He's not that much. He's not like a young uh, green dude. He's not a young whippersnapper. Not a young an whippersnapper. upstart, ready to take on the world. Exactly. I will say this is thinking about this now. It's really funny. I will. I will preface by saying I have a bias. I do not like Jeremy Renner. Um, I'm the opposite. But, I love Jeremy Renner, and I will, yeah, and I, I do not like so. him, and I find um, him tolerable. Yeah, I find him highly problematic. Um, but it's funny now that we're talking about this. How in all he's been in all these action franchises, and he's like so thankless in all of them, oh, yeah. like Marvel, Born, Mission Impossible, every single one. He is like the thankless one. Mm-hmm. It's his staple as an action hero, which is a weird staple to have as an action hero. Which is why I think him in a Hawkeye Matt Fraction adaptation would be pretty amazing. So great. Anya's shaking her head because... Yes to Matt Fraction's Hawkeye, no to Jeremy Renner's Hawkeye. I still, Just Jeremy I still Renner love Jeremy up Renner. He's a very talented guy. Mm, he dismissed Hawkeye being deaf at a panel, so I'm like, mm, you don't get to play deaf Hawkeye then. Well, I still think he's a very talented guy. I stand for him, even though he's an asshole. He's my asshole. (laughs) I love this. Live your life, HT. I know. I can have my problematic faves. We talked about this before. Jeremy Renner's We all have our problematic faves. Mm -hmm. So, um, this is the first, the film by Brad Bird, and Brad Bird such a great director guys so good so good so we were talking a little bit about this before uh he does this he creates tension and suspense in a way where he doesn't raise the stakes he creates new ones and it's so interesting the way that he does this where he like everything is going smoothly and efficiently in one set piece and then something always goes wrong it's always just like a small thing like we'll be saying the mask the masks don't work. The uh, the glove, well, the right glove fails. The um, the someone comes too early, and it's a it just does this in such an effortless way, and the action never really slacks or feels too much like it's gimmicky or like it, there are too many twists being loaded onto it. It just feels like a natural, organic sense, uh, organic flow of it, of action, and it's it's so well done. Brad Bird knows how to direct guys. And him coming from coming from animation, he knows how to do visuals. Yeah, almost almost like better than he knows how to do anything else. Because like a lot of scenes in animation are just you know they're hand drawn, they're digitally done on a computer screen. So like you need to like almost like do like a silent film. And a lot of the portions of this movie are like there's no dialogue, there's just action set piece. Yeah, I think that's why like the sandstorm works so well specifically because oh, yeah. the animation of that is done so well in the way he constructs it like as a sequence. And I think you're right, Willoughby. I think that comes from his experience as an animation director. Mm-hmm. 
Like that whole opening sequence with in the jail, where it's just Tom Cruise looking at cameras and t- telling Benji to open up doors to set to Frank Sinatra. Like it's, it's perfect. It's a, and like when HG said, like you know, Benji brings heart and humor, and I'm like, I'm so glad because it also shows that like Tom Cruise. I think we forget how funny Tom Cruise can be because that guy is a funny actor, and seeing him and Simon Plague play off one another is so great. He got his big break basically in a comedy. If you can yeah. characterize risky business as a comedy, yeah, essentially, yeah. And so uh, I appreciate that they're leaning into Ethan and his more humorous side and his mm-hmm. more like his grumpy dad side, his grumpy dad, his like grumpy fed dad. up with everything side. <laughs> it's where the movies also start becoming very meta textual, uh, and in the and that's because of the humor, the added humor in it. But it's not in a way that's too winking. Which is really funny. It's a way that it, which is really good. It's a, it's a way that feels natural to the film. Everything, even though the heights are so, the stakes are so heightened, everything does feel just like, you know, coming together. Like it's coming together naturally. I love this scene right before he goes out onto the hotel wall uh, window because they're just talking about it like it's a normal day at the office. Like, oh, we got to do this thing, <laughs> and he and just rolls his eyes. He's just like, okay, fine. But he doesn't say that. He just rolls his eyes. But you know he's saying, oh, fine. And then, like, smash cut to him, like, with the goggles, with the gloves, like, getting ready. And, like, that scene alone is worth the price of admission for the IMAX. The Burj Khalifa scene is still the best set piece of the Mission Impossible franchise. Like, I revisited the opera scene in Rogue Rogue Nation, and while it's still very good, there's something about the Burj Khalifa scene that just... gives this visceral feeling of just like tension and breathlessness. I remember watching it in theaters and everyone's just holding their breath and gasping the entire time. It's such a, a priceless experience to watch. My girlfriend was uh, doing other things while I was rewatching. I did a marathon two Saturdays ago and she was kind of like half paying attention to when things were happening. And when the hotel sequence happened, she was like, this is giving me anxiety. I have to leave the room. <laughs> I was like, oh no, it's like, it's really anxiety inducing. It's like, it oh my God. Yeah. The Burj Khalifa. It's like, and it's so funny because when they do it, you're like, how can they top that? It's literally the tallest building in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then he's like, we'll just put them on an airplane. Yep. Exactly. So do you guys have anything else you want to say about Ghost Protocol before we move on to Rogue Nation? Um, just that it is great, and uh, I loved uh, every minute of it. And Oh, I think the scene, like I was saying, uh, the silent scenes are great. In the Kremlin, with the wall projector, it is so It's so funny. It's so good. good. It's so it's good. so perfect. Like, perfectly well. Like, everything about it is executed so perfectly. And yes. uh, that's all I want to say about that. Oh. Yeah, and I just have one more bit. This is yet another example of why Brad Bird is not like Ayn Rand. If you believe that, stop listening to our podcast right now. <laughs> You're not welcome. Yes. So tell your friends. What? So tell your friends to subscribe. <laughs> yeah. Go away, but tell your friends to subscribe. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. As long as they are also not Ayn Rand, Brad Bird conspiracy theorists, it's not true. Mm-hmm. It just makes me see red, you guys. It makes me so angry. Anyways, well, what's your example? What do you mean? Oh, I thought you had an example. Literally no. every Brad Bird film is an example oh, of how yeah. he's not like Ayn Rand. He's literally oh. subverting Ayn Rand in 
I all of just his had, projects. I thought you had like a specific moment in Ghost Protocol you wanted to highlight. Oh, no. Oh, okay. Anyways, Brad Bird should direct a Superman movie. Mm, yeah. I mean, he kind of already has, but like he should do a real Superman movie. Mm-hmm. Superman. So we all love Ghost Protocol. So let's move on to the fifth uh, movie of the franchise and the last one before the new one comes out, Rogue Nation. Guys, I love these titles. It's so good. They've, they're like, we're just going to go all in on like the subtitle. <laughs> Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, Fallout. So, Agreed. Anya, tell us uh, what your thoughts are about Rogue Nation. So, I would have to say that Rogue Nation probably edges out Ghost Protocol as my favorite. Like, just barely. Yeah, it's, it's, that's it's, me too. They're, so, they're both so good. But Rogue Nation just, I feel like it elevated the franchise just, like, a step further than Ghost Protocol. And I remember just being, like, glued to the theater screen when I saw this in theaters. And just how much I was like, is this Mission Impossible? Like, this this is the franchise that started with flying death hugs and things like that and now we're here um and i think the introduction specifically of solomon as the bad guy and rebecca ferguson as ilsa just add the way that simon Pegg brought a lot to three and then especially four i think those two bring so much to five and they really kind of elevate the team and the cast and the energy of Mission Impossible. Um, I love Rogue Nation. Yeah, I think Ilsa Faust, Rebecca Ferguson's character, is probably one of the best characters, or maybe the best character outside of Ethan Hunt in this franchise, uh, because she's basically the female... I don't know, Benji's pretty great. Benji Rimes is pretty good. Remember when this was the Benji show, HT? Yeah, no, I'm not saying... I said probably. Like, I'm... Technically. Anyways, Benji (laughs) is my favorite, but... Ilsa Faust is basically the female Ethan Hunt, and that's what makes her such a great and interesting foil to Tom Cruise. She does everything he can, but backwards and in heels. It's true. Mm-hmm. It's true. And she looks exactly like Ingrid Bergman. She does. Can we talk also about true. this? She, I believe she was a clone. They started the technology in the 50s, and they just kept going. Yep. And they do a lot of callbacks to her looking like Ingrid Bergman, too. The Casablanca set pieces, oh, yeah. the um, the one where she's, like, in a coat and hat. And I was like, wow, they're not even being subtle about this. But, um, I, yeah, I, I love her introduction. Her in the opera scene is just, like, top-notch Mission Impossible. But I will say I still have – I still put Ghost Protocol above Rogue Nation for me just because I feel like – I like having all the characters together and being that found family. Whereas in Rogue Nation, they're all kind of apart for a lot of the film. And there's a lot more tension there. And while I think Rogue Nation is a more technically perfect film, I still have just like Benji in my heart and the Burj Khalifa in my heart and Ghost, Pro- Ghost Protocol. Fair. And Fair. Jeremy Renner's butt. And Jeremy Renner's butt. Jeremy Renner's butt looks good in Ghost Protocol. Like, honestly, I really love the stretching scene and it's my favorite part. <laughs> but- HT, I remember... Six years ago, you just posting a lot of Jeremy Renner gifts on Tumblr. <laughs> um, yeah, Willoughby okay. knows all about my problematic faves. 
I Jeremy Runner's butt um, on the Tumblr. Um, the Rogue Nation mm-hmm. is very good, in my opinion. I think it, it edges out Ghost Protocol because it it gives the the IMF like their mirror, the anti IMF, the syndicate. I think that's such an interesting idea to have like like the mirror version of this group. Like they they do exactly what they do, but they do it for evil. Um, and I think it's so fascinating, and I love the world building of it, and I love the introduction of Ilsa Faust as like this double agent, triple agent. You know, like she's she's really on it for the good guys team, but she's also like Britain, but also like pretending to be the syndicate. There's so many interesting layers to her, and like, the, and that's exemplified in the in in the opera scene where you're like, well, who, what side is she on? Because it looks like she's gonna take out the the Austrian prime minister, but then she's like not there for that. And Ethan has to do, has to pretend to shoot him. It's like, there's so many like levels and layers to that whole scene. And I think that it's just a more interest. I think ghost protocol has excellent sex set, set pieces, but I think rogue nation has a more interesting story to tell. And I think we're going to see more of that with fallout as well. Cause it's like the first real true direct sequel from what I've heard. Yeah. Whereas Aquarius coming or, back. Rogue Nation is definitely, like, a continuation of kind of what they set up in, in Ghost Protocol. Um, like, very, like pretty much all, the, like, Jeremy Renner is a, is a holdover, uh, and so is Benji, and uh, and Ving Rhames is back. Like, so, like, the characters are there, but I feel like the story this time is is connected, whereas the Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation are not connected story-wise Well, they all. actually, and they, well, they do reference the Syndicate in the final oh, minutes at of the very end. Ghost yeah, Protocol. so there's, like, connective tissue there but i feel like mm-hmm. the events of <laughs> fallout is a fallout from the events of rogue nation um and i i, I just think it, it's a it's a more int- i like solomon lane as like this guy who's like who went rogue with this whole idea uh with the syndicate and took it to like new levels yeah it's kind um, of the and- same idea that john voigt's character has in mission impossible the first mission impossible where he goes mm-hmm. rogue and he wants to you know use all of his skills for his personal gain oh i mean uh what's his face from number two was like that too he's he like was also an imf agent like all these imf agents are like i don't want to i want to be evil now they're like cool you have the means to do it apparently um yeah but yeah rogue nation i think just just like, I think, it ha- and the motorcycle chase sequence, I think, is uh, amazing. The motorcycle and the opera scenes, mm-hmm. like those two set pieces, and are I think fantastic. And the airplanes, and the airplane, yeah. and can we it's just so good. Like, and- it's like, it just, it's like they're doing the IMAX set piece right away to get out of the way to be like, we also have these other uh, helpings of amazingness for you later on. Won't you partake? And can we talk about how? amazingly this uh rogue nation is filmed like every shot it feels like something out of almost a classic film especially the way that they frame ilsa faust uh Mm -hmm. and like the opera scene for example they had when she steps up to like take her shot and you see her like eyes framed in that wooden i don't know shack kind of thing or like wooden box and the way that like everything it feels like it's it's, I, I don't know how to say, like, I don't know how to express how it feels like a classic film in the way that it's filmed, but everything it feels powerful. It's an homage to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's an homage, homage, but it feels like every shot, every scene, like, matters in a way. Mm-hmm. It's and like, just the maximum impact. Weren't you saying how much the opera scene reminds you of Hitchcock? Yeah. Was I saying that? 
I think you were going to reference that. Oh, well, I wasn't saying that specifically, but yeah, it's a good scene. Um, very good yeah, but I think that's actually interesting why I differ from you guys for Ghost Protocol versus Rogue Nation because I'm a character person and that's why I like Ghost Protocol so much versus Rogue Nation is very much the strongest plot we probably have in a Mission Impossible movie. So, and that's why it like holds together so well. Yeah, um, I completely agree with everything you guys are saying. I think, like what Libby mentioned, um, Fallout is going to be like the first kind of direct sequel. And I think HD mentioned Macquarie's coming back. And I think that's part of why I like Rogue Nation a lot and like why I'm so excited for Fallout, besides the fact that the hype has been crazy, is that like I feel like Rogue Nation was kind of the first Mission Impossible movie to make the world feel bigger, like to expand the world of Mission Impossible. And I think they did it. It could have gone terribly wrong, and I think Macquarie did it in a really good way um, with, like, the syndicate and everything, like Willoughby was saying. And so I think it's a great movie, great set pieces, but for me, what I really love is how much it really broadens the world of Mission Impossible. And we're all looking forward to Mission Impossible Fallout out in theaters this weekend. And Henry Cavill reloading his arms, ready to punch again. Which he improved apparently. So good. Yes. And which also makes his beard grow and his pocket, his little shirt pocket grow as well. Do you guys see that? Yeah, I think it's just lighting. It's lighting, but also I'm going to think that, you know, his arms are so powerful, they make his facial hair grow. <laughs> he just, he reloaded testosterone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yes. before we move on to, oh, Actually, let's wrap up our discussion of the Mission Impossible franchise by... Do you, want to, do you guys want to rate our movies? Yeah. Yeah, sure. All right. Anya, you go first. How would you rank the Mission Impossible movies? So I would go... I think I would literally just go backwards. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Protocol. For two for being fun. And then one. Yeah. All right. <laughs> they just get be- they literally just get better and better. So Fallout's probably going to be at the top of my list after I see it. All right. Yep. Willby, how would you rank yours? Five, four, three, one, two. Lift off. <laughs> All right. I go four, five, three, two, one. I love how all of ours are, like, the exact same, except for, like, just, like, one, one thing switched. Because they're all, yeah. honestly, they're all good movies. I don't think we've had, like, an action franchise that goes on for this long that have had all such consistently good, enjoyable films. And well-made films at that. Fast and Furious. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but... it's interesting. It's interesting when people are saying Mission Impossible is the best action franchise right now. Mm-hmm. And I think I would say it's the best and most consistent Mm, because for me the best bond films are still better than the best mission impossible films i don't know i think there's only one good bond film and that's die another day (laughs) one good bond yeah it's sorry sorry sorry. i meant skyfall is the only one that tomorrow never stuck in my mind every other james bond film i've seen (gasps) Kind of Casino just like, Royale is literally Royale's perfect. Good. 
Cinderella is good, but like all, all the Bond films I've watched have basically like, faded from memory except for Skyfall. Uh, but Timothy Dalton's Sky, uh, Timothy Dalton's Bond is so good. Skyfall's I actually haven't seen, seen any Timothy Dalton, so <laughs> I'm sorry. But I think Mission Impossible is more consistent. Yes. Yes. But um, you have to admit, the Pierce Brosnan movies were pretty consistent with their cheesiness. They were pretty consistently bad. They were pretty consistent. Yes, I'll, I'll give Pierce Brosnan that. Just like his um, not-so-great singing. He's very consistent <laughs> as an actor. All right. Let, before we move on to the last segment of our episode, we have one last message from our sponsors. The Millennial Falcon is brought to you by watches. Watches, they go tick-tock. <laughs> Let's move on to the last segment of our episode. I really, 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 really like you. But I need to tell you something. Hey, Wilby, why don't you start us off this week? What's you really like? Oh, I saw Sorry to Bother You on Saturday. And it fucked me up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't really... I, mm-hmm. There's not much I can say without spoiling, but there are images in that movie that will not... They are burned into my head for quite mm-hmm. some time. And uh, capitalism is a cancer on the society. And Army Hammer is great at playing the uh, um, evil white man. Yep. Especially when he's wearing skirts. When he's wearing skirts and he's got that old, that like uh, silver fox beard growing in. Ooh, that beard, army. Call me. Um, but also, can we talk about Tessa Thompson in that movie? She's yes. so good. And, yeah. and Stephen Yen. Stanfield is amazing in that. Stephen Yen is great. Um, it's a, it's directed, written and directed by Boots Riley. Um, and it's very, very good, and if it's in select theaters, but if you happen to be in an area where it's playing, I would highly recommend seeing it. It is definitely rated R, um, and, uh, yeah. Look yeah, up be- nothing about it. Yeah, yeah. don't you go, can, go in blind. blind. You can watch the trailer, yeah. and really, like, the trailer does a really excellent job of showing you basically everything from the first, I'd say, third and a half of the movie. Um, but the but it, do, it doesn't doesn't show you anything about what. No more. The no best more. impression I can give you of this film is that it's magical realism in a movie done right. Yes, agree. And also dystopian and capitalistic, and also satire of capitalism. Yep, it's a lot, and it's great. There's a lot going on in there. Definitely one of the best movies of 2018. Yes. And uh, one thing you should say is don't call it this year's Get Out because they're very different movies. Yeah. And it's a racist thing to say. Ooh, Don't people are it. saying that? Yeah. Yep, the Guardian. Oh, no. You're, you're following the right people, Anya, because people are saying that. Excuse me. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm, yeah, like, I'm glad I haven't seen that yet. It's like calling uh, any white movie this year's Mission Impossible. Like, this is <laughs> ridiculous. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's haunting and satirical, and uh, there's, like, four images that are just going to be burned in my brain forever. Um, okay. All right, Anya, what is your really like this week? Um, so I had a really like, and then Comic Con happened. Oh, and it threw my really like kind of out the window. Oh, whoops! Like a sad thing? No, 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 no. As in, oh. like news out of Comic Con, like trumped what my original really like was. Oh, okay. You were like, 
something terrible happened, and now I have to do another really like, like, oh, man. Whoa, it's so, so oh. serious. No. Can you, um, can you say what your really like was going to be? Just, like, quickly? Yeah, it was literally the existence of Lily James. Oh, okay. okay. Because I saw Mamma Mia, here we go again, and it was great, and she is an angel, and I was just going to be like, how how does she exist? She's so perfect. So it's not a sad thing, because she has done nothing to make that untrue. It's just that Comic-Con happened, and we got more Good Omen stuff, guys. So it's less of a really like and more of a really excited, because I can't say if I really like it yet, because it hasn't happened, but like, I'm going to like But do you like, like the it. footage that you've seen? So, two things. Okay. Let's start this. Good Omens is a satirical look at the biblical apocalypse. It is a book co-written by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett. It was my very first Neil Gaiman book and started my whole love affair with him. Um, And it's about a demon and an angel who are friends on Earth. And they really like their mundane lives on Earth. And so they kind of don't want the apocalypse to happen. And so hijinks ensue. And you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And you have the Antichrist who gets, like, swapped at the hospital. And there are witches and a prophecy. It's just, it is a lot and it's hilarious, and it's so clever, and it's so British. It's such we're British humor. A, so British, and we're getting a TV a series. Too British. <laughs> no, no, no such thing. thing. There's things I don't understand, no. and I'm like, okay, you I just guess take it's the funny. context, Willoughby. Just be like, yeah, oh, yeah. context. But it's coming as a series on Amazon next year, and we got casting news and our first look at the show at Comic Con. So casting news. Frances McDormand is playing God. God what? is a woman, as said by Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande. <laughs> so perfect. And then we got a behind-the-scenes video, and we got to see uh, David Tennant and Michael Sheen, who are playing the two main characters. Um, Michael Sheen is playing Azrael, the angel, and David Tennant is playing Crowley, the demon. And it just looks so fun. Neil Gaiman is very heavily involved, which... He's Makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he is showrunner. Um, I forgot if he was showrunning or just writing. Um, but Terry Pratchett passed away, so I know that this was kind of a big project for Neil Gaiman. Um, and I just have a lot of faith that they're doing it right. Um, and I think the fact that Neil is so is the showrunner and is so heavily involved shows that. And I just, like, as a Neil Gaiman fan, the fact that we've gotten American Gods and now we're getting Good Omens, like... I just feel so blessed. Just, and even though American Gods has been on hiatus for forever, and it's been through all this drama, it's going to come back, and it's going to be beautiful. It's a good time to be a Neil Gaiman fan. Good time, good time to have faith. Huh? I, I so believe these to... are, this preview is a good omen for things to come. HD is one of my fellow Neil Gaiman fans. Um, are you super pumped for? I'm super excited. The casting is perfect. <laughs> and uh, Michael Sheen and David Tennant are perfectly cast in their respective roles. David Tennant as a just devil may care demon is like the most perfect casting I could ever think of. And Michael Sheen as the uppity angel, also perfect. John Hamm as uh, Gabriel. The angel Gabriel in an extended so role. So good. So good. And um, I'm, I'm just so excited. I'm so excited to see this finally come into play. I wonder how well that really particular British humor can be translated to the big screen, or rather to the TV screen, rather, because it's it's just 
it works so well I mean, and it's so dry and British TV quirky. shows. I mean, that's like true. the thick of it is like super British humor. That's true. It's just like it's so, more like wry than anything. But then, yeah, it. So I wonder if it'll work well because, like, you know, for with with the first Harry Potter book, it was actually quite funny and quite like very British humor, and that got, definitely got lost in translation on the way to the movie. Yeah. So I wonder how well they can do it. But then, yeah, Neil Gaiman is sure running. He's writing the series, and he, I think, can definitely bring that to life especially um he has the blessing of terry pratchett too who gave it to him in a letter posthumously so yeah. i i'm just, i'm really pumped i'm so excited i can't wait and we, we know oh, neil gaiman that- is good at visual scripts because he's done doctor who episodes yeah. he's written other movies and screenplays so like he, I have, neil gaiman I have, is perfect i have faith and also, i'm also note, excited willoughby is a neil gaiman fan um and he is also excited for good omens um I read just, the entirety of him. He doesn't God. quite fangirl him the way HT and I do, which was the only point I was making. But Neil, but Willoughby likes Neil Gaiman a lot. Yeah, HT and I just we're we're a Neil Gaiman fan club here. We are, we are. Um, I just I, I would I would die for him. <laughs> I'm so <laughs> upset that you had a picture with him, and I'm just I'm the most jealous person I could ever be. Oh, oh, and it's framed. framed. Oh my god, I hate it. I love it. Oh. I literally just pulled my framed photo of Neil Gaiman off my desk and showed it to them on the Skype video because HT brought it up. So I did not realize you, you printed that and framed it. That's amazing. Uh, hell, I also have a framed photo of me and James McAvoy on my desk, <laughs> right next to it. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't mess around, you guys. She doesn't mess around. No. Anya is a true fangirl. Hell yeah. So my really like is a movie that I saw an early screening of. It's for another really powerful film that has to do with race as well. And it's also set in Oakland. Like, sorry to bother you. It's called Blind Spotting. And it's so good, guys. I've seen the trailer for it. Yeah. The trailer actually doesn't really do justice to how good this movie is. Um, so it's directed by Carlos Lopez Estrada. It stars David Diggs, uh, who was in the original Hamilton cast. Um, and he is, he stars as a, an ex-con who's in the final days of his, uh, probation. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, he, uh, on the, on like the last day of his probation, he witnesses a police officer shoot an unarmed black man. And it kind of just spirals from there. And he starts to kind of grapple with his own status as an ex-con, the race, and the gentrification in Oakland, and also, as well as his sort of um, hot-headed best friend, uh, Miles, who is a very bad influence on him and who is kind of the reason that he gets landed in prison in the first place. And Miles is also a white man. So there's a really interesting dynamic there. And... It's just, it's so fraught. It's really funny, but it's just, it's so incisive and really good. And it doesn't deal with the same themes as Sorry to Bother You. It kind of comes at this neighborhood from a completely different perspective. But it's just as smart and just as good. And it leaves you with this really big impact at the end um, that I won't to go into because I don't want to get into spoilers, but it definitely feels much more just like in the now feels very lived in. And uh, a lot of the 
it, the one interesting sort of gimmick with it is that it a lot of the scenes, the climactic scenes, are done in rap. So David Diggs takes out his rap skills, and there's just like some organic sp- parts where they're like he and his friend are like rapping for fun, but then like other parts where he just kind of does a whole speech in rap essentially, and it's so good. And it like oh. and though there's a line at the end where he talks about why he's doing it in rap, and you're just like, wow, it just like sets you back like blows you back into the back of your seat and it's amazing so i highly recommend it it comes into theaters uh oh it's in select theaters now but um it is yeah so you should check it out if you guys can um please do it's so good i'm so excited that you liked it because i'm super pumped for it i'm so excited to be digs like finding success after hamilton i think it's worth noting that the guy who plays miles in the film Raphael cassell is david diggs best friend in real life like they've been friends for years and they've been doing creative oh yeah you can find like their old rap videos on youtube together like they have been creative partners for years that's interesting that lends a lot you basically don't see them it, you you don't really see them without one another in like creative projects like outside of Hamilton of course but like yeah um it's the, I'm really curious about that element just because like knowing that they have that relationship in real life mm, that's interesting that will definitely add a lot more like you knowing that to watching that film because their friendship is like the core part of the film and like him sort of interrogating that friendship and stuff it's really good <sighs> it's such a film it's Yay! such a film. Cool. All right, um, such a film. So that other episode for the week, guys. Um, if you have any thoughts on what we've discussed about Mission Impossible or Blind Spotting or Sorry to Bother You, or if you're also excited for Good Omens, come chat with us. And where can they do that, Willoughby? You can find us on Facebook if you search for us there. We're also on Twitter at Falcon Podcast. Our blog is millennialfalconpodcast.wordpress.com. Uh, you can listen to us on SoundCloud and rate, review, and please subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. Um, and where can they find you guys? You can find me at htranbui on Twitter. You can find me at Anya Crittenton on Twitter. And you can find me at Willoughby Dobbs on Twitter. All right. Thanks for joining us, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.